Hi, Cherise here with a special announcement. You can now enjoy select episodes of Detailed in video form. That's right. Detailed is now available on RCAT's YouTube channel. Now, you may be thinking, I already listened to the podcast. No need to watch it on YouTube. Well, trust me, if you don't want to miss out, even if you're an avid listener of the podcast, the video format is a completely different experience. Not only is it like hanging out with us, but you also get to hear parts of the conversation that were left on the cutting room floor. You can also see the photos, drawings, and video as we discuss the incredible projects that are featured. Come join us on YouTube. Follow the link in our show notes, and let's get into the details. This is an original podcast by RCAT. Try the number one most used website for finding building product information and save time and money. No registration is required with RCAT, so try it today and get ahead on your next project. Visit RCAT.com. That's A-R-C-A-T dot com. We never set out to, as a goal, to even get a single award. It's just we do what we believe. And, you know, we're lucky enough that we've aligned with other people that believe in similar things that we do. And we call it mitigated risk. You know, when we talk to professionals about what we do, it's mitigated risk. Calculated risk taking, if it's something no one has seen before, but you know it can be done easily, you have to educate people, you know, and it's a, it's a mitigated risk. This is Detailed. An original podcast by RCAT. I am your host, Sharice Lakeside, Senior Specification Writer at RDH Building Science and fondly known as the CSI Kraken. We will speak with professionals who share their insights into the most complex, interesting, and odd building conditions and the ingenuity it took to make it work. Join me as I pull back the curtain on the building industry and uncover the lessons learned. You'll gain valuable knowledge to help you better navigate your next project. Welcome to Detailed. The voices you heard in our intro were my guests Angela Brooks and Lawrence Scarpa, Principal Architects at Brooks and Scarpa, with offices in Hawthorne, California and Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Angie Brooks is co-principal and a leader in the field of environmental and social equity design. Her firm has received over 200 major design awards. Angie was the first woman to win the AIA State of California Maybeck Award, Go Angie, for exemplary achievement in architectural design and a different kind of legacy as an advocate for issues that extend beyond buildings. Angie and her partner Larry recently received the 2022 AIA Gold Medal, the AIA's highest honor, for their pioneering brand of architecture that profoundly enriches the human experience. Larry Scarpa, co-principal, has garnered international acclaim for the creative use of conventional materials in unique and unexpected ways. He is also considered a pioneer and leader in the field of sustainable design. The project we are going to talk about today is that gold medal winning project, The Six an affordable housing project in Los Angeles, California. As always, click the link in our show notes to see the project and additional details as you listen along. Or 
visit www.rcat.com slash podcast. The Six is a 52-unit affordable housing project that provides a home, support services, and rehabilitation for previously homeless and or disabled veterans. I have to admit, as I learned more about this project, it really struck a chord with me. And I'm looking at it and going, oh, that's really cool. I wonder if they'll talk to me. Before I even knew what the building was, what purpose it served. Affordable housing for veterans was not what I expected to read. And I was coming from very humble beginnings when I was younger. My mom was a single mom and we struggled and had to live in affordable housing for a while. And it blew my mind. (laughs) So, you know, that's what brought me to this table, you know, that and knowing what it feels like to not have a lot and live in an environment that doesn't maybe feel really great either. And so that's why we're now friends. It's a gorgeous building. So let's just start with the overall story of this project. What is the kind of background, history, goals, aspirations behind this building? Well, first of all, we don't believe that being disadvantaged and good design are mutually exclusive. We never believe that, that, you know, because you're don't have money or access that you shouldn't be entitled to. Angie will always say, good design is a human right. And we first and foremost believe that and we try to give that to all the people we work with, whether they're rich or poor. And in fact, it makes a bigger impact on people who have less when you design well for them. Yeah. I would live there. I mean, it's a beautiful building. A lot of people go by our buildings and they want to get an apartment there and then they figure out that it's affordable housing. You know, in fact, sometimes it works a bit negative for us because even other developers who look at it go, that looks really expensive. And it's not, you know. Or this idea that it's too good for people who maybe were previously homeless, you know, too close to the beach or looks too good, you know, that is just really a mindset that we fight against. The project is located in MacArthur Park, an area of Los Angeles, California. I don't know about you, but I have Donna Summer running through my head now. MacArthur Park has one of the highest densities in the U.S. with over 38,000 people per square mile and a total population of 120,000 people in only 2.72 square miles. Now, there is a dire need for affordable housing throughout the country, but Los Angeles is its own unique animal. Through their creative solutions and deep experience, Brooks and Scarpa have established themselves as experts in multifamily affordable housing. In fact, Angie began her career with a nonprofit developer, which would ultimately lead to their work on The Six. But Angie started her career with a nonprofit developer. So she worked for LA Community Design Center, and the person who sat next to her ran a very small group at the time. His name was Mike Alvedras, and Mike became the executive director of the Skid Row Housing Trust, who was our client for this project. Mm -hmm. And this is their first project off of Skid Row, ground up. I'm assuming they're planning more. Yes, they've done more. Yeah. Okay. Ironically, they have been priced out of Skid Row. 
So Skid Row is an area of downtown Los Angeles, which is where all of these old hotels that were existing sort of lived, and they purchased them and renovated them for homeless people and coined the term Skid Row. And then fast forward 30 years, now they're starting projects off of Skid Row. And Mike will be the first to tell you that good design is part of the healing process. One of the biggest steps to improving your life and having a better life is having hope, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yep. And a sense of dignity. Offering shelter and comfort, the six breaks the prescriptive mold of the traditional shelter by creating public and private zones in which private space is de-emphasized in favor of large public areas. This building is located in MacArthur Park, which is one of the densest communities in Los Angeles. And it sits on a street of other large apartment buildings that all have fences around them and look very defensive. And so what we wanted to do was create a building that looked very open and inviting, yet was also very secure for the people who live here. And it was the first project where when we were in the design phase, we met with the building committee that was made up of previously homeless people who lived in the Skid Row buildings. And we originally had a monumental stair sort of from our courtyard connecting to the sidewalk. And they told me, Angie, you know, we've lived on the street for a long time and the street's a very dangerous place to be and we don't want to be connected to the street. And so by raising the courtyard up in this particular building, it allows you to feel like you're connected to the outside and connected to the street and sidewalk life, yet be physically separated from it. So when you look at the building, you don't see the gate that you have to go through to get into this building. And there's actually two on either side. You don't see the fence around the building. It looks very open, but it's strategic on the design side of how we sort of make that happen. And it's a very, very secure building. And we've taken the courtyard. And if you look at the front of it in detail, we have this terrace planting that eliminates the need for a guardrail. So while you're up on that second level, you can see right out to the street and vice versa. So it's total secure, but it really feels like it's part of the street because of its relationship to it. And there's no railings that block it off. There's nothing. There's the barriers are taken down. So it's a kind of invisible security but you still feel the buildings connected and part of the street. And at the end of the day, buildings that people love are the buildings that we save, you know, that stay for a long time and that kind of endure. The organization of the space is intended to transform the way people live away from a reclusive, isolating layout and towards a community oriented interactive space. It's 52 apartments combination of studio apartments and a few one bedrooms. It's 40,000 square feet. It costs $10 million. It has support services on the ground floor, a large computer lab for the people who live here. We weren't really given a program other than that by our client, other than make it a beautiful building. One of the things we really tried to do was when people live together in a dense environment, the exterior space and the courtyard space become really important. And also socialization for people who have lived on the streets for a long time or veterans or whoever it may be is a really important factor, but you don't want to force people to be social. So we have a lot of exterior space of different types. 
The main courtyard is the big space where everyone circulates around into their own apartment. And it also is open to the large kind of shared community room, which has a very large kitchen and a glass wall that can open so that the interior and exterior space can be one. And then on the roof of this building is what some of the people who live here call their Zen garden. And it's more open space, smaller seating areas, which are surrounded by planting. We're actually under the Pacific Flyway, which is the pathway for migratory birds. So there's a lot of planting on the roof for the birds that fly over this building. And it becomes this really kind of quiet space where people can also go. And then on the very lowest floor, we have sort of these planters that capture all the stormwater. So there are various types of exterior space where people can be. And we think that's really important. Yeah, most most architects, I think, or people think of architects as designing buildings or objects. We actually think about designing the space in between. So it's like, what is the void space like? You know, so this, in this case, a courtyard and a courtyard is a model that's been around for thousands of years. It's a typology that's worked for thousands of years. And so our idea is a variation of a shared common space and how it's used. And we like to think of it a bit like a dance floor at a club, you know, where it's a place where things happen. And if you you want, you can go out in the middle and be the center of attention. Or if you want to stand against the wall and look and just observe, you can do that in the community room that opens up or the balconies that look over it. And what we did here, which is unique too, we have real public art. We have real original artwork in this building throughout around the courtyard. And we work with the Marciano Foundation to provide real art. And people are shocked when they see it because these are, you know, not like little crafts people doing art. These are real artists that have their work there. And it uplifts people. You know, again, we have this perception that just because you're disadvantaged, you know, you may not like art or you may, you don't like things that normal right. people like. And we try to make it as normal as possible. I love that roof space. Nothing drives me crazier than an ugly roof. <laughs> I just like, you stand in a building and look down on another roof and you're thinking, who did that? Why'd they do that? That looks horrible. Well, if you look on the roof too, there, there are these forms that are pyramidal type of forms but what you don't see in housing it's very very difficult because with 50 units you have 50 bathroom vents you have kitchen vents that come up all over the place and if you look at our roof you see none of that and so we're very strategic about how we get those services out of the building and they're grouped and put in those kind of sculptural forms so that we can make the roof a real space that's usable instead of a junk space, you know, that, okay, you get a little tiny deck up there, but you're looking at all the, you know, the, the stuff you don't want to see on the roof. It's a part of our design process to think about the mechanical, electrical, plumbing, structural, and how does it impact what we're trying to do with the building form. And, you know, even courtyards allow you to have smaller footprints which meet all these other goals that we have for climate change and lower energy loads and everything else. So when you look at it holistically, it all really works together because some of what we're doing actually brings the cost down when you think about it. So I think part of 
how we've made our mark as we treat all those things with the utmost seriousness like budgets and uh, maintenance and all those things where we're very practical on that point of view we make our buildings cost efficient and we get them built you know but when people see really good design they think there's a lot of baggage that comes with it you know like from expense to egos and all that and we're not we're not that at all working within constraints is often leads to the best solutions and when you do affordable housing there you trust me there are a lot of constraints but those help us too when we do market rate and other projects because you learn to deal with budgets and you learn to deal with okay you know what are the value decisions and where are you going to spend your money mm-hmm. it's given us success in other arenas like for instance on this project you know and I tell people well they ask how can we meet these budgets and it's you know we we just build simple boxes you know we don't build wedding cakes we don't build buildings that require a lot of steel they're wood framed you know in their boxes but when you have two boxes you know for the six we connected the boxes with a wall and with the unit and you know we spent a little bit of money in a beam that had to kind of cross between the boxes and we made it appear from the outside like a white cube you know with a courtyard in it but when you're in the courtyard you can see up to the sky and you see out and you see that part of it is a false wall so there are sort of tricks that we use to make the building appear a certain way when in reality we're really just building kind of simple boxes and then doing a little bit extra to make them look really different and designed, you know, well, and maybe even, you know, a little bit of complexity into something that really isn't that complex at the end of the day. The six further distinguishes itself from most conventionally developed projects in that it incorporates energy efficient measures that exceed standard practice, optimizes building performance, and ensures reduced energy use during all phases of construction and occupancy. The design emerged from close consideration and employment of passive design strategies, including locating and orienting the building to control solar cooling loads, shaping and orienting the building for exposure to prevailing winds, shaping the building to induce buoyancy for natural ventilation, designing windows to maximize daylighting, shading south-facing windows and minimizing west-facing glazing, designing windows to maximize natural ventilation, utilizing low-flow fixtures and stormwater management, and shaping and planning the interior to enhance daylight and natural airflow distribution. These passive strategies alone make the building 50% more efficient than a conventionally designed structure. There are different climate regions around the country, right? So the six is in California. It's dry. It doesn't rain, you know, and you always want to build a passive building first, you know, so a passive building is one that requires the least amount of energy added to it to either air condition it or do whatever energy loads you need. You want to reduce the energy load first. So having this courtyard allowed us to have cross ventilation through all the units. It allowed us to mitigate the sunlight, orient the building properly. You can induce breezes through your building by the shape of your building. So that, um, and we've actually proved that, you know, actually on Colorado court. So we know that the building form can actually improve the passive ability of the building to operate without energy. So that's the first thing that we do. And on this particular building, there are solar hot water panels on the roof because that is really 
the biggest bang for your buck when you think about it's a fully residential building. So people are there using hot water a lot. So to have solar hot water is really the first thing you want to do when you, if you add a system to it, and then you want to do the photovoltaics after that. And you want to mitigate all your stormwater every time it rains. All the water that hits the roof goes into the planters that we have on either side. We don't have a gray water system on this building, but, you know, gray water is also a way to capture it as it rains more in this region, you know, capture it and then actually use it. But there's no, you know, really high tech thing going on here. It's all just sort of common sense. And my mother, she would refer to this as Jewish common sense. When we give lectures, you know, we'll often ask people, okay, raise your hand if you hate natural light and cross ventilation. Raise your hand if you hate materials that don't off-gas. It just makes sense. You can do things that make your building way more efficient passively that don't cost any more. You know, it's just how you plan it. And so what Angie's saying is we design our buildings to be really efficient passively. And then all the other technology is really just icing on the cake. What I was hoping I would kind of pull out of you in this question is because you're right, there's a lot we can do without it costing any more than whatever we're planning in the first place. That doesn't mean that that's what everybody does. Well, we've had projects, for example, we had a housing project we did, and we had this perforated metal skin porch that had shutters on it, and the client wanted to look at value engineering taking it out. So we did, and there was a number put on it, and it was a good-sized number. And they said, okay, let's pursue removing it. Our building's going to look really ugly without it, but it saves us quite a bit of money. So we took it off, recirculated our drawings, and our mechanical engineer goes, oh, what happened to that screen on the building? You're not going to have that? Yeah, you're not going to have that anymore? Well, you know, we're going to have to increase our AC units. They're going to be a lot bigger, more load. And then our structural goes, oh, you're going to, that equipment's a lot heavier. We have to redesign the structure. So in the end of the day, it costs very little, you know, so they get this beautiful aesthetic thing that costs almost nothing more. It had some added costs, but it the bang for the buck was very, very dramatic. So we always look at, you know, the things we do from an aesthetic point of view, what's its performative value as well. So when you think of things just for their, it looks good, you always lose the argument. But if it has performative value, you get not just the performance, but you get the aesthetics that come with it well at a very low price point. One component that has performative value, cost implications, and visual impact are windows, and Brooks and Scarpa's thoughtful approach is deployed across all of their affordable housing projects. And natural light flows into these apartments, and it's because the windows are tall, and we know that when we when we do windows that are tall and relatively narrow, you have actually more wall space for your shear panels. So your structural engineer always wants shear. We don't want to add steel to the building. So we want to use wood, structural wood shear panels. So we never do horizontal windows because that just obliterates your shear. So if they're vertical and they go all the way up to the ceiling, you know that sunlight then hits the ceiling and gets reflected into the apartment. So when your apartment has a ceiling that's maybe eight foot 
two rather than eight feet or eight, eight feet, three inches, and the sunlight hits the ceiling, you know, it appears like a much bigger space and you have a much better view to the outside. And that's just a design move that we actually, there's a kind of a list of things that we do right off the bat at the beginning that we will not change, you know? So all of the windows, if you look at all of our affordable housing projects are the same, the same vertical window with the same, it's maybe three feet wide. And for the size apartments that they are, these studio apartments, that's what we always do. They might be in different orientations or organized a different way, but you know, there are certain things that we will always do on these projects. And we know it saves money at the end of the day, provides a nicer you know, appearance inside the units, allows natural light to go in. And then when you get more natural light, you turn on your light less, you have less light fixtures inside your unit. We don't use dark floor materials, dark paint on the walls. We use always white. And so, you know, if you lighten up what's happening inside, you know, it's just a much brighter place for people to kind of to be. If you couldn't already tell, this level of sustainable design is nothing new for Brooks and Scarpa. It's in their DNA. In 2002, we did the first LEED certified building in the United States. And that was called Colorado Court in Santa Monica. And it was just things we believed we should do, you know, and it was an affordable housing project. And, you know, we thought people with the lowest income spend the highest proportion of money on their utility bills and they would benefit the most of having a building that's energy efficient and all solar lower their utility bills and you put money in their pockets and we did you know some experimental things with micro turbines and groundwater and solar panels and it was a fight but all those things we fought for back then are now common today you know we had MEP engineers that go oh we don't do that stuff you know now they tout themselves as sustainability experts so we were the experts in 2000 2002 other architects asked that us, us to help them with their project so for us it's been something you know that even goes back to my graduate school work and i was doing it then and i didn't even know it was called sustainability but part of what we think is it's a more a question of ethics and we get a little bit concerned when designers tout their buildings as sustainable buildings no one goes around and go isn't my building great it's it's not a design concept <laughs> yeah it's not a design concept we just need to do it yeah so we don't talk about it even a lot with our clients we just do it and if they start making decisions which are going in the wrong direction you know then we talk to them about it but when we were in college it was called regionalism it wasn't called sustainability and this is how we were taught and it meant designing in the region in which your building exists beyond sustainability another regional consideration is the jurisdiction you must work with and their code requirements Los Angeles is notoriously one of the most complex jurisdictions to work through. Stringent codes, plan review times that can extend out for several months, and challenging processes. But Brooks and Scarpa uniquely make it work for them. We have started some nonprofits ourselves, so to work on these problems in concert and in parallel 
to our practice, you know, so I like to say we operate in a bit of a parallel universe where we have a fairly traditional architectural practice where we do buildings and landscape, but then we work on policy issues. We try to make changes for for everyone. And I never really thought about that until, you know, a friend of ours who runs the Arkansas Community Design Center, he said, you guys are the only people I know that if, a, you know, a rule doesn't work for you, you guys just go change the rule. And we do do that. So we've, we've actually been instrumental in writing ordinances. Like, you know, if you ask any architect in LA, you know, what the small lot ordinance is there, that's the greatest thing. We do that all the time. Well, we wrote that and we forced it into the hands of the city politicians. They adopted it in their own way, but, you know, we try to make change that is not just for us but for everyone like in 2002 we lobbied the state to change how solar was used in the state and net metering policy and we got that change so that we could do that on our project but it changed the entire housing industry in california and so the things we fought for you know, almost 30 years to go to get into place today are common. It's just, you know, you, you can't get funding for a portable housing project without doing the things we had to fight for, you know, two and a half decades ago. Due to code requirements and other factors, the affordable housing sector faces unique obstacles that make design even more challenging. There are project challenges, and then there would be what I call industry challenges, which kind of span across the gambit of doing affordable housing. And those are really big challenges. You know, oftentimes the clients look at the architect and they go, how do we get the cost down? Like we're, you know, in control of the cost and really... The whole sector is suffering largely from extraordinary costs to build affordable housing because of regulation, not because of design. And in subsidized housing, we have the most stringent requirements for things like ADA, performance, a whole gamut of things. So affordable housing actually costs more than market rate housing by you know, 25% or more. And it's not because of the designer or the design. It's because of the ever increasing regulation that's put upon developers of these buildings. And, you know, like just to give a simple example, the building has to be 100% accessible where on a national level, you know, if you take the most extreme, we're 35% of our population requires accessible units, but we're required to make a hundred percent accessible and that costs more money. You have to build more space, but you know, we don't have a lot of time, but with this whole kind of discussion would wind up into a, you know, 24 hour filibuster, but let's just say it's a complicated from that side. And Angie can tell you more. Well, there are a lot of, there are generally four to five funding sources in order to get these projects built, which 
increases the time and they have conflicting requirements and that adds time and cost to the project. And then there's something called prevailing wage where you have to pay a certain amount for different wage groups of builders for building it. And that's up to four stories. And if you go above four stories, you get into commercial prevailing wage. And I believe that everyone needs to be paid a living wage. But what the requirement does is it adds a layer of bureaucratic paperwork to the project because the contractor then needs to file all the paperwork to ensure that they're meeting prevailing wage or commercial prevailing wage. And then you have land use attorneys and, you know, it's just added on and added on and added on. And so at the end of the day, if you look at all the money that's been spent to build one of these buildings, very little of it is spent on actually the design part and building the building, it's a lot of costs that go to other things. But one of the things that we try to do when we design the building is to look at things that we know we need to have in it, like exit stairs. And we don't put the exit stairs in a two-hour shaft in the corner of the building where no one can see them. We try to make them exterior, like we did on this project, put it in the front, make them sort of a an experience where they're open to the outside, which actually saves money, People can walk down the stair and be a part of the courtyard and see their neighbor on the second or third floor, you know, but you still need to have it because it's an exit stair. So what we try to do is work with the fire department because sometimes they don't want an open exit stair in that location, you know, so we spend a lot of time on the design for things that you have to have anyway in your building to make it look really nice and be a really nice space. But then at the end of the day, you can't say, oh, it's over budget because we're going to take out that exit stair. You know, you still need an exit stair. We generally have our staff, you know, they do the plan check corrections and they'll come back like, well, we can't have an open stair, the fire department says. So Angie has to go down there. She knows the code better than they do. And they like fear when Angie comes in. Uh Oh, Angie's coming down, which means problem for the building department because, you know, Angie always wins when it comes to that, or at least 99% of the time. But it requires, you know, again, a fight, like with the fire department to say, look, an open stair is legal. Here's why, here's how it complies with all the, you know, setbacks and the things. And But it, it's it's a fight. And, you know, in that example, we have to fight that out on almost every single project. And so, you know, what happens is 99% of the other projects that could have an open stair, you know, they people tend to give up because the fire chief says, I want it enclosed. And they go, okay. And we say, no, we're not doing that, but we have to go down, spend extra time and effort and fight it out. And it might mean that, you know, you provide an extra sprinkler head here or you do something else there because at the end of the day, you want to protect life safety and that's what we do. But there are different ways to get to the same point. So I always go around also on my soapbox saying that I want people to be educated as designers and architects and then go do other things besides designing in an architectural firm. I want them to go work for the fire department. I want them to go work for mayors of cities. I want them to be the people who hire us and work with us in order to get buildings done. Because once you sort of understand the benefits of design and how we can actually design really beautiful buildings and also meet all these other code requirements, it just gets easier for everyone to be able to do buildings like that. And cities are constantly changing. You know, communities are living organisms and design is really important, not just for a building, but for everything around the building. And so how, how is the street designed? You know, what is the density of the community? Does it have transit? 
and all of these other questions that I think designers are really well suited to answer. If we don't have a seat at the table, we need to be active and create that seat or make that table and educate others to make better communities. That's kind of, you know, if I was dominating the world, I would want that to happen. Better communities, you know, not just buildings. We have to think beyond the property line. The Six is a prime example of the expertise that we've been discussing. The team at Brooks and Scarpa utilized their knowledge of the code, creative use of materials, and process to solve several challenges they encountered. And the products that we use on these buildings have to last, obviously, and the budgets are tight. So generally, it's some form of stucco or metal siding, you know, and this is a traditional traditionally stucco building. But, you know, one of the stories that kind of comes with this project is that when the client came to us for various reasons, they needed to pull a permit by a certain day. And it just so happened that they needed to pull a permit in three months, which is unheard of in the city of Los Angeles. And so the way that we were able to do that was to take portions of the building like the floor system and the roof system, the structural system, and do a design build spec on those. So our structural engineer wrote a performance spec for the floors and the roof and allowed the contractor to sort of design build what they wanted to do for the the structural system, deferred submittals. And then the walls were also made prefab off-site and they were sort of these wood trusses. And that was something that actually the builder came to us and suggested and we approved. So you have to know exactly where your windows are going, obviously, but then the walls were built with these three by wood material kind of trusses offsite and brought to the site. And that was because in the city of LA, when you put open space on the roof, which is what we did, it kicks you into the next type of construction. So we were a type five building, which became a type three building when we put open space on the roof and a type three building, you can actually still build in wood, but you have to use three by members and not two by members. So by doing those few things, just kind of on the spec side and sort of taking that out of the plan check process, we were able to pull the permit in three months. So for me, the big kind of innovation here was in the process and how we sort of got it done to meet the client's schedule. And because they're a a nonprofit, the funding sources, if we hadn't had pulled the permit on that day, they wouldn't have been able to develop for the next three years and would have received, you know, the black mark or whatever it is for not it would have been a really really bad thing that would have happened and it was literally the very day before this was to happen so at the very last day we were we pulled the permit on this project another challenge that emerged during construction was the exit stair on this particular project which is a five story building we have two exit stairs and they were both quote unquote open exit stairs and there's a definition in the building code and this is This is why I want architects to work for the building department, because I think the building code, you know, it's a basic threshold of life safety. It doesn't tell you exactly how to design a building. So sometimes you need to think a little bit outside the box to make sure that the architect is actually meeting the goals to protect life safety, but it might not be exactly in an enclosed, completely enclosed shaft, for instance. You know, there has to be a little bit of back and forth, right? Give and take. So on one exit stair, it was called an open exit stair, but when we started construction, the inspector came out and said, well, this doesn't really meet the definition of an open exit stair. And it was because they thought that we had structure in the building that cantilevered outside of the building that 
connected to this exit stair, so it wasn't completely separate. He said, I think this is an interior exit stair, and I want you to fully enclose it. And we did not want to do that. So we had through a series of meetings and different design iterations, you know, we were able to provide a wall with openings in it so that it still is an open exit stair, but that there's a wall on one side of it. And it was just kind of working through these, working through these design issues. But in hindsight, you know, I want that to happen on the front end. I don't want that to happen when we're under construction because then, you know, the client is saying, Angie, answer that RFI tomorrow. And I need to go down and speak to somebody at the building department. And that's going to take a week. But generally, the people who actually do the code check on our buildings don't want to look at it until we submit it for permit and until we start construction. And then when you talk to someone who does approve it, the person who's inspecting it is a different person and they have a different take on what that first person approved. So I would like to revamp all of the processes in the city of LA by which we actually get our buildings built. And it's sort of the entitlement process and then the the building plan check process and the permitting process and then the inspection process. And because the city of LA is made up of silos, we have the fire department as one silo and then sort of the building department's another silo. And you can literally go to the city and ask the person behind the counter at the fire department, can you please talk to the building person on the 10th floor because I'm trying to design this one element and you will literally have people tell you, no, I'm not going to do that. So, you know, we need people to be helpful when we do permit buildings. And it would be nice if they had a design background so that they also understood design, but it's not helpful for people to say, no, I'm not going to (laughs) communicate about this design thing that you want, you know, just do it the way I tell you to do it. So, you know, I think it, I think if we did do that, if we did relook at the systems under which we do permit projects in the city of LA and streamline that, and we know there are ways to do that, I think it would save a lot of money. We'd build, build a lot of affordable housing much, much quicker we'd have buildings that are actually better buildings that actually look better. It'll be easier to do buildings that are more well-designed. And I think there's a push in Los Angeles, at least to, uh, because we do have a big homeless problem and people are living on the streets and we do need to build more housing at all levels for people, affordable housing. The new mayor, Karen Bass, really wants to cut through whatever whatever it is that constitutes red tape in getting permits and getting things built, she wants to really cut through that. So I have noticed that when we do have a challenge or we do have an issue, that when we say this is affordable housing, this is 100% affordable housing, we would really like to meet the life safety goals, which we have over here, we really need your approval, you know, to get this done, that people are generally saying, you know, oh, okay, yes, we will do that. But to me, it's, it's I don't want baby steps because it's 100% affordable. I'm like, why can't we do this citywide? You know, let's just kind of break this wide open and allow everyone to build. Because part of also what we believe in is projects that are built by private developers, you know, need to have a percentage of affordability in them. Or how do you do inclusionary? You know, in the city of LA, if you do build both affordable and market rate, you can get incentives on density and other things. And so not a lot of developers take advantage of that, but we want more developers to take advantage of that so that we do have more affordability in our communities. And the only way to do that is to make the permit process more streamlined. And I think it's a low-hanging fruit. It's a low-hanging fruit. It really, should be a really easy thing to do to streamline and kind of get rid of what we see as red tape. This episode is already jam-packed with lessons, but one of the key takeaways for Angie was the early collaboration with the client 
and with the future residents. Collaborating with the client and actually talking to people who are going to live here or people who are of a building committee that represents people who are going to live here was really the first time that that happened to me. Generally, it's just architect to client and not really talking to people who would live in the apartments. And I think that was pretty eye-opening for me because I had never really spoken to people who had been homeless about the challenges that they faced when they were homeless and what they would like to see in an apartment where they might be living. And we've done several of these now, and they're apartments for people who are previously homeless. They're generally pretty small, and that is because they're very dense buildings, which makes a lot of sense. So some of the Units themselves are 240 square feet up to 360. Some of them don't even have ranges in them. They're shared kitchens. I'd like to also see, and we've done this on smaller existing buildings where the units are just more like hotel rooms and there's one kind of common kitchen on the ground floor. I think in this country, we need to start looking to other like European countries where they actually do things like this, where If you're a young professional like I was who didn't maybe have a lot of money but wants to live in New York City or wants to live somewhere where where you can have a job and ride transit and you don't want a car, maybe there's an ability for you to have an apartment that's smaller and actually share kitchen space with another family or, you know, have one common kitchen on the ground floor. If it allows you to have the ability to have a less rent to be able to live in a big city to try to get a leg up and start a business or whatever it is, you know, we should have that opportunity for people. And so I feel like when we think about housing in this country, we don't really have enough opportunity of different types of homes for people to live. And we need to really start kind of thinking about that. And it goes back to policy and codes. And, you know, we need to blow through the restrictions, which say that you can only build a single family house here and you can only build an apartment building here. You know, there's about 50 different housing types between the single family home and the apartment that I can think of right now. And all are probably considered illegal in most communities in this country. And it would be nice to incentivize them and figure out a way, if we all agree that this is a good idea, figure out a way to incentivize them and say, okay, if you're going to provide one kitchen on the ground floor for this really cool apartment building where everyone's going to live and their rents are going to be $300 a month or whatever it may be, right? You know, what are the codes around that? And how do we make sure that it's built in a way that works for everyone. You know, let's start thinking about that. Well, and if you think about it, we're already doing that somewhat in dorms at universities. Correct. Mm-hmm. You know, a similar concept. Mm-hmm. Our kids are living there for four years. You know, they're living there full time. The model is already somewhat there. Yes. And we have existing buildings that operate that way right now. And we've renovated some of them that are on Skid Row, actually, where they are hotel rooms with a common, because that's how we used to live in the 30s. They were apartment buildings and generally for single women where you would live in an apartment and you would have a shared communal kitchen on the ground floor. And it wasn't just solely for affordability because business people would come into the city and also live there for a month or what have you. And it was really a way for people to socially connect too. So it's not just to meet a price point for rent. It's really also to be a more social community. And I think, and it's one thing that we have Dr. Lucy. So when we have earthquakes in California, you know, I used to have earthquake bags all over the place. And Dr. Lucy, who's the seismologist who talks to us after we have an earthquake, she said, oh, forget your earthquake bag. She said, the most important thing you can do when you have a natural disaster, whether it's an earthquake or whatever it is, is know your neighbor. 
And we know that you can't know your neighbor if you live in a suburb where you drive everywhere. You can only know your neighbor if you live in a denser community with narrower streets. And that's a proven fact, you know. So when you think about the future and how we want to live, I think everything is tied together. But I think it'd be great if we could sort of break open how we provide housing for people on a much broader scale and think about these more innovative ideas. Because I know that the architecture and development community will be all over it and we'll be able to provide solutions for it. And we just have to make them by right, right? Right now, every, most everything is an entitlement in Los Angeles, but different types of housing is also, okay, you have to get a variance for that, or you need to ask for special accommodations for that. You know, We need to really create the ability for architects and designers to create these different housing models. And that will solve a lot of our affordability issues. Right now, we're just talking about how to make it cheaper within the existing framework that we have. And I think it's the existing framework that needs to change and that it will then be the solution. I really enjoyed hearing about the six. But before we wrap up this episode, I want to share additional insights from my conversation with Angie and Larry, where we chat beyond the scope of the project, like hearing their thoughts about fear. Well, it's human nature to fear the unknown, but venturing into the unknown allows you to find things you wouldn't otherwise find. Right, but you have to have the confidence (laughs) to do that. Well, we don't look at like a failure as failure. We just look at it as iteration. So, you know, I think in life you regret more what you don't do than what you did do. Right. And so we kind of, we've kind of tried to do things about what we believe and let chips fall a bit where they may. And that's kind of similar with some of the awards like the gold medal. We just, you know, we never set out to, as a goal to even get a single award. It's just we do what we believe. And, you know, we're lucky enough that we've aligned with other people that believe in similar things that we do. And we call it mitigated risk. You know, when we talk to professionals about what we do, it's mitigated risk. Calculated risk taking, if it's something no one has seen before, but you know it can be done easily, you have to educate people, you know, and it's a, it's a mitigated risk. Beyond the business, I wanted to know what fears Angie and Larry had early in their career that they may have overcome. Not getting the opportunity to show what I believe, you know, I could contribute. I mean, that was the biggest thing for me. I always feared, and I still do, you know, that not getting adequate opportunities to show what we can do and how we can kind of contribute for us. It's still a struggle that way, you know, where we we know we're perfect for a project and we don't get selected. It's just a strange world. Everyone wants you to, you know, if you try to do a school, they not only want to know if you've done a school, but how many schools have you done? How many K through 12? How many K through 12 on a corner lot? How many K through 12 on a corner lot, two stories, you know, the, the qualifications parts gets, is getting very, very difficult these days. For me, I would say it's the imposter syndrome, constantly trying to make sure I have enough confidence in myself to be the smartest person in the room. 
you know, when I'm talking about something that I've been doing for the last three decades, you know, so it's just feeling comfortable in your own shoes and being able to explain to people that in fact, you do know sometimes more than maybe what your clients know, or maybe what a builder knows, and you just need to explain, you know, your point of view. And generally people will get on board with what you're saying. And so it's just learning to kind of overcome that, I think for me. With the attention of such an innovative firm, I was curious where they saw that we repeatedly fail in this business and what we could be doing better. I think we do a really bad job at explaining to people what it is architects do. And it goes back to my statement about wanting designers and architects to go do other things, you know, to be mayors of cities, you know, so that you can actually think holistically about how your city operates and actually hire the professionals to do what you need to do on that broader level. But I have been involved in the Mayor's Institute of City Design and have talked to mayors. And I'm surprised when I listen to someone who's in a position of power that I see as a position of power where they can make big changes citywide. And they're speaking to architects and they come to the meeting thinking that the architects are just going to tell them how to make a pretty building or tell them how to you know, paint the garage doors on an alley to make it look better, as opposed to thinking holistically about how the community is developed over time, for instance. And so our profession, I think, needs to step out of the box more, think beyond the property line. And, you know, people don't come to us to ask us those kinds of questions because we also don't kind of tell people we can answer those kinds of questions. But, you know, you go through life today and I can't do anything without an attorney. It's very hard, you know, you go to the city and it's attorneys writing our public, writing our policy and actually kind of making these zoning codes. And if you want to change the zoning code, you need a land use attorney. And it's hard to do anything without kind of the law profession. And I think the architectural profession and the design profession really I'd love to have a place where you can't do anything without your designer. You know, if you're a, someone in a position of power who's making big policy decisions, you know, they need to say, where's my architect or where's my, my urban planner? Or where's my designer? I need to ask them these questions so that I understand the link between density and the light rail that's going to go here and our one that sits right next to it, you know, or, or whatever it may be. So I think if we could do a better job of telling the story about what it is we do and step outside of our comfort zone. And, you know, we've done a lot of kind of exhibits on the side and kind of pro bono work about sea level rise issues and density and the links between density and housing and everything. But they just kind of get put on a shelf, you know, because we're architects and we talk to one person here and it just sort of stays there. And I think the value of what we do as a profession is so great and we're going to be so needed in the future as we come across these climate change goals that we're going to have. Maybe we're going to be needing to rebuild entire communities, you know. We're going to be needed to answer those questions. So we have to start telling people what it is we do and how we can best do it and get that seat at the table. And so I've been actively trying to do that. That was such a great conversation with Angie and Larry. I am particularly excited that I actually get to meet them both in person when they join us here in my hometown, Portland, Oregon as the keynote speakers at our annual Portland CSI Industry Forum on May 11th at The Red, also a great building. The Industry Forum theme this year is Dense City, Housing for Quality of Life and Social Change. I can't think of better keynotes on that topic, and I can't wait to meet them both. You can check out the Portland CSI website if you're going to be in the neighborhood and would like to attend. 
I hope this episode sparks a new idea, helps you solve a problem that you've been working through, or inspires the mark that you want to leave on this world on your path to world domination. For me, it's pretty simple. You know, I'd like to be known as someone who is an artist that worked with purpose. Mm -hmm. And for me, it's really having the ability to have more people have access to design. Because I think design is not just something that we need to think about in our buildings, but it's something we need to think about in whole communities. And we need to start living in different ways, both to meet psychological and social goals, but also climate change goals and a lot of other things. And so I think having the general public understand what design means and the links between, you know, design and traffic, for instance, or density and traffic and well-being and what a building looks like, you know, just having people understand design, I think, is something that would be really great, I think, at the end of my life to know that I've actually helped thousands more people understand (laughs) what it really means, what good design really means. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and want to learn more, visit rcat.com forward slash podcast to see photos, details, and more related project and product information that we discussed today. While you're there, take a look around rcat.com. For over 30 years, RCAT has been the resource for AEC professionals to find the right products for their project. Try RCAT and see how their tools can save you time and money and help you get ahead on your next project. Visit rcat.com. That's A-R-C-A-T dot com. If you enjoyed the show, you can support us by subscribing, leaving a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts, and sharing this with your friends. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back to share more stories and lessons learned to help you navigate your next project.